Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. This week's guest on In Her Room is Isabel Abbott. A doula for the body and a doula for the soul. A deeply connected wise woman. Transcending the limitations of medicine, anthropology, and religion. Isabel Abbott walks in many worlds. As a writer of lists and letters, she connects women to their deeper truths by unlocking the passageways between this world and others. She creates cartographies of our inner landscapes and writes to access our personal mythologies. Isabel is a healer, a dreamer, a prayer dancer, and a woman with wings. Isabel, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited to talk with you today, not just about writing, but also about your work as a teacher and as a spiritual being and the intersection of art and activism. Uh, But to start, I'd really love to know, what is writing to you? Uh, Writing has uh, its own story for me in terms of what it has meant to me and how it came and found me. I would say that my first experience of real writing was writing as protest, which was a big piece of the activism. Uh, And in that, a way of finding my place of belonging and having a voice. So it was a way of uh, coming to see the inherent value in everyone's individual voice and learning how to tell my story as opposed to being a mouthpiece for someone else's story. So initially, and this was in my early 20s, there was a lot of protest in that, like writing as protest. Uh, And there's still a, a strong streak of that for me, which I love. And it has also become a way of expression and I would say a way of uh, making meaning and holding that events happen uh, as they happen. And we, the event itself, the factual pieces of it uh, occur and the story or the narrative is constructed later and the meaning that we make from that. So I think writing has become a way for me to play with meaning and uh, layers of meaning and, and falling in love with the process that memory and therefore meaning changes over time and evolves. And writing is sort of uh, like my my trail of breadcrumbs that I can follow uh, to connect the pieces. Mm. Mm -hmm. And you write um, something that I think is um, really unique and special. My first introduction to your work was uh, through your website, listsandletters.com. And that's a space where you use the form of a list to create space and also structure for your words. And I'd really love to hear about how that came to be and what that means for you as a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the form, and, and I would even say the idea for the form, uh, had probably always been there. And then when it came time for me to uh, start you know, my own website or my own blog, and I, I felt like that was the time in which I wanted to do that. Uh, and so it was a way of bringing that focus 
um, very specifically a focus to it. So everything that is written on that uh, website uh, is either in the format of, of a list or like a letter that I'm writing to someone uh, or to a thing or to a memory, um, but it says a genre, it's a letter. Uh, so I may write essays and they're published other places, but on that space, it is specifically those two. Uh, they're the longest for me forms of writing that I would say I have been writing the longest uh, in terms of a time frame. Even in periods of my life where I've not been doing other kinds of writing, those two are, are pretty uh, significantly rooted for me and have sort of seen me through a lot uh, I think my mind, in terms of the lists, is how my mind works. So I love the aspect of not having to uh, force connections, and I love that in the number, so if you're writing a list and things are numbered, I love that there's a conversation happening between things, but the conversation is also the reader. So the, the meaning that you're making in terms of how all of these things connect is rather open to possibility and fluid as opposed to an essay or a story where you're doing more of, of um, you know, walking through someone specifically, this equals this and then moves into this and then moves into this. And with a list, things get to, at some level, stand alone a little bit more. So I love that piece of it. It's also a way for me of allowing a lot of, a, a wide range of what I write about because what's cohesive is the format or the structure. So if you're thinking in terms of having a blog, and a lot of blogs are thematically, so people are writing about a certain thing. And by the unifying factor being the structure, it has allowed me to cover a, a wide range of what's going on in my own life and politically and, you know, what I'm thinking about this. And so I can move from, you know, writing about grief uh, to writing about um, the way the seasons change. Uh, but the format stays the same. Uh, and I also... It, I've never, you know, said this specifically or directly on that site, but in terms of the, the underworkings of it, I think for me it's an acknowledgement that all writing, when we use a structure, the structure itself is incredibly manufactured. And so to do something that's so constrained uh, is to acknowledge uh, that what we're doing when we're writing very rarely is our our native tongue or our mother tongue, and we're sort of being asked to fit into um, these structures of language and communication. And so by having it be so direct and so overt in that, uh, it's a way for me to also be questioning it, I think, at the same time, subversively. And I also love that a list is never done, is what I would say in terms of why the, the genre speaks to me. Uh, I stop it at some point, whatever that number is, you know, whether I write a list of five things or, you know, 65 things, uh, but you could keep going. And so that has always, always appealed to me, um, that it's a, a continuing conversation. And in the lists that I write that are not on that site, but that are constantly evolving, they do evolve. And I go back and I'm adding to them all the time uh, and, and choosing where they fit it's like a large library card catalog in my head uh, in terms of how things are stored, memory and, and subject matters. And so it's finding the umbrella in which these particular pieces want to come together um, and make a constellation and trust that the meaning is made in the spaces between. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I love that metaphor of a card catalog in your head. Um, I think in part because libraries for me have always been really important and also because I know what a card catalog is. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and not everyone does, but at the same time there's something so there's something so delightful about a card catalog that is lost, I think, in electronic cataloging of books in a library because we miss that, um, we lose that physical sense of of combing through. And um, for me, a lot of my nonfiction writing is that combing through of looking for the right book, looking for the right memory, and finding the place where it fits. So... Mm-hmm. You are uh, both a writer and you also teach writing through workshops, through prompts. Um, you have your Writing the Womb, which is um, currently in its self-study form, though there will be a new course of that launching in September. I'd love to hear about how that came to be and what Writing the Womb really means for you? Mm. Uh, it is, it's a culmination in terms of, you know, I would say a, a body of work of mine. So the, the fit of if I'm going to work with others uh, in writing and in aspects of voice as a subject matter, uh, it moves into a lot of the areas that I have had personal experience as well as have worked within. So I worked as a, a doula uh, for many, many years and some of my academic writing, a lot of it has been uh, within medical anthropology, particularly Greek gynecology, so sort of the history, the larger history of the uterus uh, herself. So I have uh, that background that I'm bringing to a course that is, of course, titled Writing the Womb. Uh, it's an opportunity in some ways to write what I would describe as more womb-specific narratives, uh, which as a subject matter is not given a, a lot of airtime or space on the bookshelves. You know, you could certainly make the case for it being because it is a predominantly female-bodied uh, experience, and those stories have often not been told. So the stories of what it means, you know, reproductively, whether that be pregnancy, miscarriage, uh, still death, abortion, terminating of a pregnancy, those are to me very important stories, as well as when we get into issues of illness uh, or issues of menopause and change of life and the way that uh, our biology does affect our experience. And again, it's, it's very dismissed or it's told I keep that separate from writing. Uh, that's not art uh, because it's very base, right? It's very of the body. So it's a big uh, sort of question mark around that, like, is that true or could this actually be the source of a lot of what we have to say? So I love the experience of being in a a writing community of other women who are giving voice to those uh, specific stories. In terms of what it is beyond that or maybe beneath that is, is a better way to say it, I would say it's a writing course that's about uh sort of facing head-on uh, patriarchy and specifically uh, patriarchal influence on language itself and our ability or capacity and, and censorship of uh, having a voice and using our voice. I would say the largest question 
that sort of brought into that writing space and course is, is what would you say or speak or write if no one was here to tell you uh, what you should do? Uh, there's so much good, good information out there on how to write well, on how to structure, on how to you know, get your novel from this point to this point, and character development. Academia is another environment where you'll find fantastic uh, resources and support on, again, a very specific kind of writing. And yet, in very prevalent in almost all of that is incredible patriarchal uh, systems. So I find great meaning uh, and enjoyment and feels like a big part of my life's work to create spaces where we get to uh, be with the issue of patriarchy itself, uh, examine sort of the lies that we've been told uh, and what we would say if we uh, could get to the voice uh, that happened before um, that kind of interference and what does that voice have to say now. Uh, so the process of the course sort of walks us through a lot of those questions as well. And the community that then forms in that space kind of blows my mind every single time, the way that uh, women sort of come together and end up sharing their stories and writing uh, things that have maybe been stuck, you know, and, and hasn't uh, been able to sort of like rise up and to find the language, their own language in which to say it and then be received by a community. Uh, of other women uh, is a tremendous experience and one I'm, I feel privileged um, to get to be in. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, you also have created and co-create the course In Her Skin, which as you and I have talked about before, the themes for each session will change, but the core idea is there. And I'd love to hear how that came to be and what keeps you returning to that work with fresh eyes each time you run it. Yeah, uh, it is a, a co-collaboration. Uh, so myself and uh, Stacy uh, De La Rosa uh, created it. And it sort of came about uh, both individually where our work was taking us and then in, in relationship, in conversation. Uh, so... It's a, a real collaboration in that sense. For quite some time, Stacy's images had then ended up being paired with my words. I, I, I would then write and you know, in connection with the photographs she was taking, and that just felt very effortless and alive, I think, for both of us. So we, for a little while, have been like, oh, that, so this will go somewhere at some point because uh, this just feels so good. Uh, then there is sort of the aspect of my own uh, work uh, creatively as well as uh work that I do outside of the arts and it is a lot about issues of embodiment whether that be again within reproduction or end-of-life care uh, and some of the activism that I do really is about um, supporting others in living more fully embodied and asking the real questions as to uh, when that split happened that we elevated experiences um, that are disembodied uh, and my my belief system uh, being that there is great, great power in returning and living fully embodied and in that really having you know, access to all of us. And that that's also the place where God might be uh, granted entry. So in, in whatever way we defy God. So that was sort of my come from. And then Stacy was having her own 
sort of uh, process and experience with that. And then uh, we both uh, had written separate things that received a lot of, of feedback from others that clearly we had sort of touched upon something um, that was really alive for, for others as well, uh, surrounding issues of embodiment and, and how we see ourselves. And, and then there was issues of censorship that came up as well, where there was uh, photographs and words that were sort of banned on some social media sites uh, that really raised questions as to, again, why we have created uh, this entire mythology surrounding uh, the female body uh, and none of it really getting to be defined by the women themselves. So we were like, let's sort of put our heads together and, and play, and that's really what it feels like. It feels like basically just a really long, ongoing conversation uh, there's a, it's about really entering into questions. So it's not a, a course format where we're going to, you know, walk you through how to, or, you know, do this, do this, do this. Uh, it's a series of prompts that you get every day that are just ways of being alive inside of what we would call a living question uh, around things that pertain to our experiences of living uh, embodied as humans in this lifetime. And then there are different themes. Um, so we did one on body wisdom, and this one now for spring is on you know unfurling and, and what it means to sort of you know, take up space, you know, inhabiting our own physical form as well as space in the world. So I love that the themes get to shift, but we really keep it uh, central, which is about the embodied truth and what it means to really listen to our own selves in that way, and uh, and honor the voice that then comes from that, whether that be in in image or in in written language. Uh, so it is, it can go really deeply, surprisingly. I think I was a little surprised at how, how deep we went because it's a seven day course. You get uh, prompts that come to you once a day and then there's an online uh, community and space as well for people to connect and share their work if they want. And, and the, the depth of the places people were going was remarkable. And it, it maintains the, the overall container and feeling of, just enjoyment and, and pleasure in the exploration uh, itself. So, and I, I love, I love working with her. So. Mm. Mm -hmm. And another part of your work that is um, really very much about the body, but also very much about spirit, um, which is another huge part of your work and who you are is hand mapping. And this to me is such a beautiful thing um, to read about and to witness the responses of those who experience it. And I, please share how this came to be and how you came to this, this work with such openness and such grace. Mm. I, I've loved old school, what I would call like old school palmistry forever. Uh, and I like the old carnivals and the fortune telling cards, all of that always was, you know, if we have those things that we're sort of compelled to return to again and again, that's one for me. Uh, so I, I love it. Uh, I then started studying with a couple people who would not be old school, who would be more in, you know, would be considered contemporary, though they both had very different uh, perspectives and point of views on uh, palmistry. So that sort of gave me my my groundwork in knowing, you know, like sort of like a body of literature, like, well, these are, you know, this line here and this uh, viewpoint would mean this and this viewpoint, it would mean this. So that's sort of like the, you know, the pillars that I have uh, supporting that. 
so I would say I was able to, you know, read palms uh, for quite a while and had not done it in any sort of professional way and then began to have experiences doing it in person and, and here locally in Chicago where I live and where I really began to think like this is, we're both having a real significant experience, both the person who's receiving it as, as well as myself, like there's something to this, not in a fortune telling sort of way, but in a uh, exploration and possibility of what it means to create uh, through language, like to give the words for something can be so useful and so significant. So to give language to our own personal mythologies, and that's really probably how I would explain um, what, what the hand map is, which is, you know, the old stories are these myths that we can then find ourselves in. Uh, they're not specifically about what happened. So I'm not going to look at your palm and be like, oh, well, this is, you know, when your parents got divorced or things like that. I don't read palms in that way. What I do do is really look at uh, the lines themselves on your palm, your hand, uh, and this can be done virtually through photographs, and then I write all this out for um, the receiver. And, and I go a bit into the history in terms of, you know, in this train of thought, this is what this would mean. But then in, in putting all that together and reading those together, we're sort of creating a personal mythology that someone can find and locate themselves within. And so it becomes a way of understanding and living uh, the story that your life has already uh, been creating for you in in a mythic sense, uh, which is very different to me. And, uh, and I think in terms of the feedback I receive from others, um, those who are experiencing it, it is very different than a timeline like this happened, this happened, this happened. Uh, a mythology is uh, fluid and lets you come inside and play and it also can change. And, and that's something I talk about with the readings, which is you know, uh, the lines on our hands are are continually evolving. Uh, and so some of that is can be based on, you know, issues of the actual body and illness. And some of it is how we're using our hands. So the idea that our stories get genuinely engraved or embedded uh, into our skin and in our body based upon um, the doing and the happenings of our life and what we have given ourselves to and how we've actually used those hands uh, to me is is beautiful and a way of exploring, of creating meaning um, and then unraveling uh, the story that we want to tell and create uh, with our lives. Mm -hmm. I also see a line here um, between the, the idea of a map um, as, as both a geography and a topography, as well as a, a system of guidance and a, a way to see possible movement and and paths forward, and also some of the the writing that you've shared and the theme of place and the importance of place in your writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I maps beyond even the palm are something like the old school fortune telling that I have been you know, obsessed with for a long time. Uh, I think, well, I, I know a lot of it was influenced by the fact that I moved as much as I did as a child, that there was um, a more of an experience of, of transience. And I both still travel significantly, so that sense of where one belongs 
uh, for me, I eventually found uh, that I belong, you know, kind of in the places or spaces between, <laughs> which was its own, like, oh, right, that's why one place will never feel like it for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that process, both of movement and then place or orientation, uh, is just is, and it and remains true in my writing, a, a pretty significant theme. Uh, I also think within, you know, the larger scope of mapping, and then, you know, even in like a hand map when I'm doing it, the the intricacy and and to me beauty of a map is that it's not ever about a specific place it's actually about ways of intersection and where they connect so if it's just one road very rarely do we actually need a map when we need a map and when we go to to look at a map is to see where the crossroads and the intersections are happening and that again is sort of a an experience of conversation and and things um weaving themselves together uh, so I love the exploration of that in, in any form, whether it be on a hand or whether it be in the writing. And, you know, even going back to the list, we could say it's sort of the same thing there, right? It's like I'm putting out these things and then the question be, becomes, where do they intersect and where do they connect? And then again, that's a map. Uh, the sense of, of geography or location or place is is also compelling to me in that I I do believe that at some level they are persons. So place has as much um, significance and I think aliveness for us uh, as people do and in terms of how we experience memory, uh, how we experience meaning, how we certainly how we experience belonging. Uh, there are places, whether they be apartments, buildings, uh, regions, you know, parts of the country, certain kinds of land, where I think when we're there, we recognize and acknowledge a sense of this like oh this this is this feels right and that sense of return and a place having claimed us uh which to me is is really one of the most tremendous experiences uh to be held in that sense by an ecology that is so much uh, larger than us and i think we're all homesick is also what i would say so i think we're homesick in some ways for ourselves and the the experience of geography and place and land and movement is at some level our way of living out um, our homesickness. Mm. Hmm. I'm reminded of this quote that um, people might recognize from the movie Garden State. And if anyone can actually tell me the person who deserves credit for this quote, I will be incredibly grateful because it seems to be by unknown. But the quote is, I'm homesick for a place I'm not even sure exists, one where my heart is full, my body loved, and my soul is understood. And I I think that is very much in alignment with the way that you write about space and the way that you um, think and talk and explore place. Um, I am so grateful that I had a chance to spend time with you in New Orleans, speaking of place, and and the journey that was had, um, so many things that we experienced on that trip, but I think also for each of us, that idea of 
of place and, and being in a place and also the spirit of the place and, and the spirituality of the place, which is another really important theme in your work, um, both as a writer and as a human. You are study, beginning your studies at the Chicago Theological Seminary this fall, and I'm really curious about how that particular path opened to you and what it means for you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really thrilled uh, to be um, taking sort of that next step and doing so there at uh, CTS, at Chicago Theological Seminary. Uh, for me, it is, you know, its own evolution and really did feel like the next step, uh, and that is, is sensing my own work both creatively as well as within my um, you know, profession and activism of moving deeper into uh, issues of medical ethics and uh, particularly end-of-life care. So that I'll be getting a Master's of Divinity, and so getting to explore a lot of those questions there, particularly within an interfaith uh, model, and wanting to, you know, work uh, with uh, people within a diversity of faith traditions, uh, religions, upbringings, uh, and including those who, you know, would claim none as their own, but are still uh, in those places of asking questions, right? And so I think, you know, birth... Uh, death, uh, sex, I think are all three really significant uh, experiences, like the most human in some ways, and that we're so bound or tethered to the body and what it means to live embodied in those experiences. And there are also elements in which uh, they're just so unknowable. So we just come up against our, our limitations of getting to pretend that we control things. And we're faced with the, the vulnerability of being human. And, and even within our faith or our belief system or what we may have even given our whole lives to, the reality is, is, you know, no one knows. And so what that looks like to be with people um, and just be in presence with people in the unknowable um, and asking the questions that can't be answered uh, is work that uh, sort of called my name and, and feels very much like a vocation in that way. Uh, so moving in that direction, and particularly at that school, uh, is just, for me, a, a real honor and something I'm completely thrilled uh, to be doing. And and yes, it is a, an evolution, meaning like these are questions that I have been already exploring in my work and, and in my writing. And spirituality, you know, itself is a, a word. It's not a word that has had a whole lot of weight or meaning for me uh, personally. And it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe my late 20s, somewhere in there, where I really began to understand by listening. I just started listening more to other people and, and begin to, to realize like what they were talking about was an experience I've had. We've just been calling it very different things. But the experience like, oh, oh, wow, yeah, that, I, I'm with you right there. Like you're calling that spirituality or you're calling that God and and I'm using different language for it, but those experiences um, are in some way shared, which I would say is like coming up against what you could call mystery uh, and an experience of, for me, it would come as just profound gratitude where I would be so undone by the gift of just getting to be here and be alive and the incredible diversity uh, of 
of humanity and of the world and that I just got to be in it and have some place in some part of it would kind of knock me over. It was so beautiful. And then I thought, oh, some people are having an experience and they're calling it God. Uh, so that was sort of when that began to shift for me. And I was like, apparently I am spiritual. <laughs> I didn't know it. Um, so that did sort of, you know, change, change that for me. Uh, and I, again, I don't have a, a faith tradition in that way where I can say this is, you know, my religion. Uh, but I have great respect for the fact that it does seem to be this very human experience that we uh, want to create meaning. And our faith is one way uh, that people do that. And that we're all kind of, you know, pilgrims in that sense, like on a pilgrimage, or we're all seekers. And where we'll land with that, nobody knows. Uh, and it's a, it's a process, and it's a trip that we're all on. Uh, and that in these moments, we get to sort of come alongside one another and be fellow travelers, uh, to me, is kind of the most important thing or the closest I would say I get to experiencing God. Mm. Mm -hmm. I would really be honored if you might share some of your writing with us. Um, this is, I'll read here um, just a short essay. Uh, and it is from um, the Awake Life and Limb. Uh, from Soul Growth Radio. I wrote it for them, and it is sort of about uh, some of the things we've actually been talking about in terms of uh, these aspects of uh, embodiment and particularly uh, spirituality. And so I will just begin. Awake, life, and limb. For a long time, my life was like being displaced in some way, transient and fractured, forever exiled from my own body. I could not be or become comfortable comfortable because at any moment the next evacuation might occur, or the alarms inside the head short-circuit and scream ceaselessly even though all you're doing is sitting there waiting for the coffee to brew. But time bends and reality blurs, trauma shaking itself through a body long after the day when the breaking became one tremor too many. And when that happens, the psyche doesn't even have time to pack boxes or bags and instead it just flees leaving your limbs sitting in a chair, terrified and hollow inside the numb. I could not settle inside my skin because at any moment I might be evicted, as if the part of me that found myself in bed with another person had failed to communicate with the physicality of the flesh being suffocated. And so the way I knew to make it right was to evict my own self so as to survive. I lived dismembered and disjointed, which the larger world supported and even encouraged. At times, I was even praised for it, for my capacity to soldier through even when in pain, and for my ability to disconnect and leave the constraints of the horribly human realities of bodies that curse and need and bleed. I learned how to live quickly and cleanly, and I learned how to never relax because I could be required to abandon shelter at any moment. This is what was required to make it through to the other side, so this is what I did. And it also was so terribly lonely. There was forever a vague uneasiness, trying to locate what was missing. Like I was restless and searching for some crucial and important piece, which was me. I was homesick for myself, returned and belonging to the body. 
The homesickness was the compass itself, the only way I had to navigate, trusting that I would find my way to remember what had been dismembered, restored to the flesh and bone, which was and is my dwelling place and wrestling space in this lifetime. It took everything I had. It was costly and savage and achingly beautiful, as cherry blossoms when they begin to weep pink and fill the air with ecstasy. And it was worth it. To return to the body, reclaiming our rightful space and live fully embodied, is to accept the very real limitations and traumas and soft hurts of the innate vulnerability in being human. No longer is it possible to pretend we can transcend all suffering, control outcomes, find refuge in ideas and ideals. We are tethered to the earth in a way, reckoning with our most human and our animal skin, our inability to avoid wounding and being wounded, our arrogance and having once claimed we could create reality with our thoughts alone. This is much of what abuse, sexual assault, and cancer taught me. I learned how to fight and surrender my way back inside. I learned how to finally crack open to trust, trusting myself and my body, which is different than leaving it and different than liking it. But the war was over, and this kind of reconciliation to reality is powerful liberation. To leave the body was to be forever lonely. To inhabit my own body was to live close to the bone of realities that we often choose to ignore. To live open to the flesh of our want and hunger and subtle awakening when even the wind blowing through fingers as your hand slips out the car window while driving can become a portal to what some people would call prayer. So it is not all love and light on the other side of returning after evacuations are over. And yet, it is also the only way to have all of ourselves. To live embodied is to know your full capacity, the full range of motion, having access to every part of you in every moment to respond to life as it arises and retreats like ocean tides. Here we can feel the full range of our own feelings, volcanic and new leaf soft. We have the open book of our own truth and innate knowing, our own needs and resistance and rebellion, our own wholeness here present, alive. It does not make the unknowns and unknowables any less daunting and even frightening, but it does make them less lonely, for we are no longer exiled from our home. This way of being and inhabiting our lives is radically different than much of the historical, deeply embedded and ever-present perspectives of many religions, faith traditions, and spiritual paths. There is such a long history of the human attempts to transcend the confines of the human body and ascend toward God, the divine enlightenment. Embodiment is messy, and it makes such complete sense that we would find ways of labeling self-abandonment and evacuating the body as spiritually superior, so as to not be faced with mystery and vulnerability, which humanizes and heals. And yet even when in the realms of the gods, the results are often the same. At war with our embodied humanity, we seek salvation in the realms above and beyond, and yet in leaving what is present and real, we become strangers to our own selves, separated and restless for home. Rabbi Kutzer Rebbe once wrote the lines that are poem, that are prayer. Where is God to be found, he asks, in the place where he is given entry. Here is a story different than we've been told. The gods found not in detachment, in leaving and rising above, transcending our embodied humanity so as to become pure or freed from suffering. This is to know and wrestle with and love the angels and demons with our own bruised and sublime bodies, becoming more fully human, awake to our flesh and feeling. 
When fully present inside our own skin, we have all of us giving the gods of our choosing entry into this life, this world, into the hands that hold and heal and the back that arches in pleasure and the terrible and terribly stunning edges we encounter when fully embodied and loving another being in their wholeness. Liberation need not be leaving. It can also be returning into the messy and mystery of this evolving physical form, the life force of veins and bones, rooted and real. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. I'm curious the best advice you've ever received. Mm. Um, the best advice, mm, they're sort of the same. Um, I'm going to do two. One uh, was an old uh, Persian man who's much older than me, who's a, a teacher, mentor, and friend for a while. Uh, and it was quite simple in which he said, when and wherever you can, be happy. <laughs> so I, I take his advice to heart in my life and in my creating. Uh, and the other is, you know, it's part of a, a faith tradition um, that involves issues of reconciliation and forgiveness. Um, but it says, you know, and you would do it in community where uh, you say, God forgives you, I forgive you. And the last line of that, uh, which is you are free to live. And to me, that is the best advice uh, I've ever received and, and have chosen to live by. Uh, you are just, you are free and you are free to live. So whatever that bargaining that can happen in the brain that's happening all the time is if you are paying debts for something as if you have to, or you're obligated or you owe something, like what if that all went away and you were free to live? Uh, great things can be done from that place. Mm. Mm -hmm. I would love to give you a chance to speak directly to listeners about um, some wisdom that you might share for them. Hmm. Uh, mostly I, I just, it's deep appreciation if I'm speaking directly uh, to listeners. I mean, thank you, you know, for being here and listening to this. And, and thank you for, you know, the ways that you show up. You show up for your work, you show up for your life, you show up for one another. Uh, I am a a pretty significant introvert and and have like wolf tendencies and then I can definitely be a lone wolf and I'm a pack animal both. Uh, so that experience of, of being um, an introvert and so alone and yet I'm I'm just so aware that you know god damn it none of us none of us really can get through this um, alone. So I'm just so deeply grateful uh, for all of the ways um, that people, you included, uh, are showing up. And for any chance, including this hour, um, that we get to walk this stretch of road together. Uh, so thank you for, um, thank you for choosing to live your own life. Thank you. Hmm. Isabel, it's been so wonderful to have you on the show today. I am really blessed and really grateful. And thank you for showing up with your yes. Thank you so much, Sarah. It was a, a true privilege. Thank you. If listeners want to learn more about you and your work, they can find you at isabelabbott.com. 
Thank you for being here. Thank you. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with photographer and soul blogger Susanna Conway, author of This I Know, Notes on Unraveling the Heart. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.